You're listening to the TM Live Book Show. It's been 20-odd years since South Africa's border wars, and for some it's just a distant, ignored memory and something to be forgotten. But for many men who served on the border, those experiences change them forever, and the memories haunt them. Paul Morris served in Angola in the 80s when he was just 19 years old, and now he's written a book about an epic bicycle journey that he's made across that country in an effort to make peace with the ghosts of his past. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The book is titled Back to Angola, A Journey from War to Peace, and it's published by Zebra Press. Were you always going to write the book, or was it something you decided to do after the journey when you started looking at your diaries? I think I always had an idea from when I came out of the bush that I'd like to write a book about my military experience, um, but never, uh, for various reasons, didn't get, get around to it. And one of them was that I didn't think I really had anything unique there were thousands of us in the bush at the time, so it didn't seem anything. It didn't, didn't seem my experience was unique enough or special enough to write a book about. But I always wanted to do something. So this, um, so the journey. Uh, so you specifically kept a diary for the reason of in the in the bush. Yeah, yeah. Um, not. I'm not sure really. I've always just written, you know, and I've always kept notebooks right the way through my life. Um, I'm not really sure why I kept the notebook at the time. Um, I don't think I was thinking about writing a book back then. It was just. Uh, maybe felt uh, maybe I felt the need just to record my experience. I mean, they weren't detailed notes, not you know, not the same sort of notes that I took on my bike journey, for example. You know, the, but there were big gaps when something happened. If there was a big attack, I would sit down and write. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to that war. Let's talk about remind ourselves as to what South Africa was doing in Angola in the first place, Paul. Um, well, South Africa, um, well, it depends how far back you want to go. So South Africa had the, the old League of Nations mandate over South, German Southwest Africa, what had previously been German Southwest Africa. And then um, after the Second World War, um, the mandates were being given back to, or being set up for being given independence, and South Africa refused to uh, hand over um, Namibia for independence and kept administering it uh, effectively as a fifth province. Um, the um, Southwest African People's Organization formed a military wing and, and started um, ins- um, insurgencies into um, northern Namibia in a fight for their liberation. And, um, and then South Africa responded by slowly um, ramping up military involvement to stop that. Um, well, I suppose sort of in terms of how we got into Angola, part of that um, strategy was to um, keep the you know, keep the border clean, initially attacking Swapo bases and, and later taking on the Angolan army. Now, you could have gone to study overseas um, instead of being conscripted, but you agreed to go into the army. Why was that? Pressure? Family pressure? It was a, it was a series of, of events, really. So um, I was an immigrant child. My parents moved to South Africa when I was four years old, and I grew up in Cape Town. So I, I felt mostly South African. Um, however, I had no intention of going in the army. Immigrant children didn't have to go in. Um, and there was a lot of pressure on me from friends, and particularly friends' parents, who were saying, you, know, you should go, you're, you know, you're living off the fat of the land in South Africa if you don't do your duty to your country and this kind of thing. But in spite of that, I, I had no intention of going. My family weren't particularly... Um, you know, they weren't trying to get me to go. They were happy for me not to go. But then sometime in the mid-80s, I think it was in about 85, maybe 84, they changed the law uh, that naturalized immigrant children automatically unless you requested otherwise. 
unless you requested not to be naturalized, which meant that um, they, the, the threat, the implicit threat was that you know, could remove your permanent residence fees and you'd have to leave the yeah. country. Or if you wanted to go to university, you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't have your subsidized university the way local students would have. You'd have to pay exorbitant fees. Um, but essentially, my Cape Town was my home. I knew nothing else. Um, I'd never, I think I'd been back to the UK once since I was four for a short holiday. So the prospect of going back there, my family um, had no intention of, of moving um, back to the UK. So it would have meant I would have gone on my own, possibly to study. And at that point, in 85, there was the states of emergency. There was, it was, the country was was burning, effectively. We could see the tires burning on the Cape Flats from my little college in, in Claremont. And um, so the prospect of ever coming back was was quite slim back then. If I left as that 18-year-old, I would have had to come back to do national service or not come back at all. So it was a it was kind of a a difficult. Well, it wasn't really a choice actually. It mm. was like, well, it looks like I'm going to have to go then, sort of thing. And you'd known people who'd done it, but I think also back then, unless you came from a very politicised family or you were highly politicised yourself as a student, then also the inconscription campaign wasn't really an option either, was it? Um, yeah. I mean back. Back then, I mean, I'd grown up in the in the in the northern suburbs. Um, I had almost no access to alternative political ideas. I started getting exposure to it when I went to uh, a matric college in in Cape Town, which was then called multiracial. And um, I started to meet people from different backgrounds, mostly middle class, but coloured kids, Indian kids, black kids. Um, I think there was one person who was a UDF activist. It was very um, sort of quiet about it at college. I think if I'd have gone, to, if I'd have made the decision to go to university first, there's no way I would have gone into the into the SADF. I think because I'd studied social sciences, I became quite um, not politically active but politically aware, and um, I think I probably would have left the country as an alternative after university. Instead, you're just 18 years old and you're off to Bloemfontein for basic training. Yeah, so um, I turned 19 in the in the February. I joined. I was in the army from the from the January. Um, I spent a year in training in Bloom with a mechanized infantry um, battalion, and then um, towards the end of that year, um, I, I was well. It's quite an interesting story. So I decided that if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to I'm going to do it as easily as possible. So I'm going to train as a driver. I'm going to train as a driver of a, a soft-skinned vehicle, so just a logistics vehicle, because I thought if I trained to drive armored vehicles, I'm likely to get shot at. So let me let me let me take the decision that I'm going to avoid getting shot at at any cost. So I did this train. I trained to be a Sawmill 50 driver, which are those big, big vehicles with a canvas thing on the back, and they transport troops and material and stuff. And um, and that was all great. And then one day I was trying to get out of doing some other work, as you do as a troop. So I volunteered to take some um, food out to the shooting range. And when we got back, one of the guys said to me, so which, you know, which, which um, company have you been assigned to for your drive, you know, as a driver? And I said, well, I haven't been assigned anyway. When did that happen? He said, well, when you were, <laughs> it must have been when you were out at Debruch delivering food. So I didn't get assigned to a company. And then it turned out they'd they trained too many drivers. So you were superfluous. Yeah, so we hung around for a while while they tried to figure out what to do with us, and then eventually they realized they could do with a couple of extra um, heads in the mortar um, platoon. So I was retrained as a number three on an 81-millimeter mortar. 
And how soon then did you go up to Angola? Well, that would have been, so my first three months was basics and the second three months was my driver training and then the next three months was um, pretty much mortar training. Then we went up to the Northern Cape to La Hatla, which is um, Army Battle School, which is a big open area where they do big maneuvers. Spent two months there training some more and doing a big exercise. And then that was, that was we're getting towards probably the no, end of November. We had a three-week pass home and then early December sometime we got sent to the border, which is quite an interesting story in itself because the, the, the mortar platoon, there were two mortar platoons trained and the, the battalion was going to be split. Half the battalion would go to Middleburg in what was in the Transvaal and the other half would go to a unit called 6-1 Mechanized Battalion Group, which was up on the border. And we started talking amongst ourselves, and we realized that the other platoon um, were mostly guys from the interior of the country. So getting home from Middleburg for a lot of them was quite easy. A lot of them were on farms and small towns that were in easy reach of Middleburg. Whereas the other platoon, we were all f- mostly from the coast. And... Um, there was no prospect. I mean, getting home from Middleburg would be uh, would be quite a quite a mission. And we also had a conversation, and certainly in our fire group, that that if we were in Middleburg, the chances of being sent to the townships were quite high. And none of us were comfortable with going to the townships. We thought if we're going to um, go to fight, at least on the border, we would be fighting an army, other soldiers. We would be fighting um, plan uh, Swapo soldiers. And it would be clearer. Um, you know, even even at that age, with all the propaganda, the, the thought of going to the townships seemed quite quite a grey area and quite a difficult area. And the rules of engagement weren't clear. Were certainly weren't clear to me of who I who I could shoot and who I couldn't in what circumstances. Whereas on the border, they are, and it's almost more moral in a way. There seemed to be, yeah. I mean, it, as a soldier, you know, you're trained you're trained to kill, and you go to you go in, you get into a battle and you and you fight to survive and you know someone comes out the other side and it's it's quite clear whereas in the townships we were trained about okay there's going to be crowds of people and you know there's, there's going to be roadblocks you're going to be stopping civilians and you've got to be watching out for arms and if someone's got to go about to throw a petrol bomb that's considered a lethal weapon and you're allowed to shoot them but if you make a mistake then you're personally reliable rather than your commander and it was just it just seemed it just I think somewhere deep down we knew it was wrong, and but we didn't have the sort of politics or ideology to go further than just a, a more of a, just a human. You know, as young soldiers, that just seemed too complicated for us. Let's just rather go to the border. So we approached the uh, the lieutenant, our training lieutenant, and said that platoon wants to go to Middleburg, and this platoon wants to go to the border. You know, is it okay? You know, is there any reason why you can't just do that for us? He went off and spoke to the the major or whatever, came back and said, okay, well makes no difference to us who goes where, so if you want to go, that's where you go. The battle scenes I find are always so confusing, even um, certainly in movies and even when they're written down as you did. Sometimes I just get a feeling of, of nobody knew what the hell was going on. Well, certainly that was my experience, but I was a really right down at the bottom of the chain and I had you know, a very small function to perform um, on the mortar weapon and there was a tiny function the whole battle. Um, and obviously, as you got further up, I mean, I'm sure the lieutenant in charge of the the, the fire group would have had a better idea because he would have been picking out targets and that kind of thing. But certainly, as a as a troop sitting in my number three seat in the rattle, it was just all confusion and and fear in the in the heat of the battle. 
we got, I think we got fairly, probably got fairly good briefings looking back on the snippets that I remember. Um, but I think I just shut them out. I think the whole um, experience is so overwhelming. I didn't want to know, actually. It was just too much for me to handle. I just had to, just had to focus on coping Getting, my, getting myself through it without falling apart. It seemed apart. to have been, Paul, a mixture of sickening fear and boredom. Yeah. Uh, the boredom always had this underlying gnawing anxiety. Um, there were usually um, MiG-23s or other MiGs in the air uh, during the day. So there was always this kind of underlying vibration of anxiety. You could never really get away from it. Always had one ear on the radio to see whether there were... Um, enemy aircraft or Victor Victor's is the, the radio code um, or just listening to that crackling rumble overhead and just sitting pretending that it wasn't bothering you but actually it, it was um, but it was there was boredom and there was no new stimuli at all so it was just Bush and the same guys I'd been with for, ne- for nearly two years by this point so we knew <laughs> I knew all their stories and I'd heard them a million times and and all their fantasies about what they were going to do when they got home, and it was just mind-numbing. Um, there was a handful of books that just got passed around and passed around until they were falling apart, and sometimes torn apart because in desperation to get something to read, one guy had finished a couple of chapters, tear it out, pass it to the next guy, and then and the book would just be torn up and passed around. And you didn't have to wait for them to finish it. No, exactly. There's a very moving scene you describe when you are finally pulled out of the area. Um, where one by one, I mean, they, the, your superiors realized that you were battle fatigued. And one by one, um, you stood up and said, we don't want to fight this war any longer. It's not our war. Mm. And they listened. Yes, and I suspect that was probably more complicated than I realized at the time. Um, I had a sense, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back on it, as a, and, and I've written the book as a, my experience as a troop. Uh, and I could have in probably investigated more about what was behind it, but I wanted to write it just as I understood it at the time. That um, we, I, I was seconded, our platoon was, our fire group was seconded to a company that we hadn't worked with before. Um, we were put under the command of, uh, of an officer that we, we didn't really know, he didn't really know us, and we, you know, we fought well enough together. Um, but then he had a conversation with us, he called us to his vehicle. We had a conversation to us to say that um, we would be, we'd been asked to do a night attack and that we hadn't really, that it wasn't in our doctrine to do night attacks. It was too dangerous. And certainly the terrain wasn't conducive to night attacks. It was quite thick bush and big um, armored movements are uh, difficult to coordinate in the dark. So um, so the senior officers, the, the battle group officers had recommended that they didn't do this attack, but the they uh, seemed that the powers that be wanted us to do it anyway. And his view was that um, his company had, had, had borne the brunt of, of a lot of the fighting and had been involved in most of the fighting and, they, and, and that we were battle fatigued, particularly his, his riflemen platoons. And, um, and at that point, somewhere around that point, he said to the mortar fire group, guys, um, you know, you've, you've fought well, I respect you and everything, but I need to talk to you. Bravo Company have been with me for the whole, you know, the whole year, and we have a, a deep relationship, which I think they did. And he said, "Would you please, you know, please leave, go back to your vehicles. I want to talk to them alone." So I don't know what was said in that in that meeting, but when we went to the big battalion meeting later, um, with where they had the overall commander, um, 
he said something like, uh, I've been told you, um, you know, six one Mech has, has had enough of this fighting and that you're tired and battle fatigued and, you know, you've fought well and you've won, won some good victories and, but I respect the fact that you, that you've, you, know, you seem to have had enough and I'd just like to hear from you. And then this is one by one, um, not everybody, but but a sprinkling of guys stood up and said, and I can't remember the exact words, but that we're we're tired and you know, what are we doing here? It's time for us to go home. We've done our bit or whatever, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, um, I'd say almost unheard of. Yeah, and so, it has been unheard of, which is interesting because mm. you don't read about it anywhere. No one's spoken about it. I don't think. No, not at all. So you cloud eight, um, went on your way, went overseas. And began your life. When did you um, realize that you were suffering from post-traumatic stress? It's an, I mean, it's an interesting one because it's an interesting term. And I think um, it's a spectrum. And it's sort of post-traumatic stress can be, you know, a handful of the, of the problems for, of, of trauma, of being traumatized. Or you could be on the extreme end of the scale where you just find it difficult to function. So and I think I was on the milder end. And I don't think I realized. And I think... I think being so young, I didn't even know myself in the world well enough to know what was normal for me. You know, I'd come straight out of school where everything was protected. Now I'm, you know, now I've had this violent transition into into adulthood. Um, so what was what was just how I am in the world, and what was a result of the war? But I think um, I don't think I, I realized until really really sort of sat down and thought maybe the maybe you know maybe i have been um traumatized by this war i don't think i realized that till into my training in psychotherapy when a, a supervisor said to me what we were sitting in, in a she was a clinical supervisor so she, i was talking to her about my clients not instead of about myself and outside there was a car backfired or someone dropped a plank on a building site or something and i said that sounded like a gunshot. I said, I don't, I don't think it was a gunshot, but it sounded like one. It just, and she said, I, I didn't hear a thing. So that kind of hypervigilance for loud noises and that sort of thing. And then she said, you know, have you ever considered the fact that you might have some post-traumatic stress? And that's what, that's what got me thinking. And then I started to put things together. When I came out of the army, I felt really aggressive in a way that I was, I, you know, I'm not now and I wasn't before. Um, and then... Um, I, I'd get um, night terrors, so waking up in the night. It was actually interesting, an interesting, um, almost symbolically really, because um, I'd wake up thinking there was a ghost in the room, um, that there was a ghost standing over the bed. And I knew it was a dream, but it was so real, and it was in the room. It wasn't like I was dreaming I was somewhere else. I was dreaming I was in the room, and I'd wake up with a ghost standing over the bed. And but could you picture the ghost? Yes, yep. Yeah. For a split second, I wouldn't know whether it was actually there or whether it was just a dream. And I'd have to switch the light on. When it first happened, I literally jumped out of bed, shouting, switch the light on, and, and I had to put the radio on for company. I was in, I think I was in Hong Kong the first time it happened. I was living there. And um, and this was many years later. We're talking about mid-90s at this point when this started. And then a few years, and it, ha it would happen on and off over the years. I've wondered sometimes whether it's happened around anniversary time of the war, but I haven't been able to. I obviously didn't record it, so I'm not sure. But, but the ghost wasn't a soldier, was it? It wasn't a soldier, which is why I didn't make the link with the war. Then in a, in a, as a therapy um, student, I had to be in therapy for the time of my, my studies as, as a compulsory part of my training. So I was in therapy for four years. And I went through a period of, I think, three or four nights in a row I was waking up with these night terrors and I'd 
spoke to my therapist about it and he said well he t what does it feel like in that in that moment I said well I'm terrified and I'm terrified the only kind of fear I've felt um, that's akin to it is, is when I was in the bush I said it's not quite like that but that's as you know, that's as close as I've been since anyway we went through this kind of almost a ritual um, and on a hunch he, he just he did this th this little ritual around um, grieving for the dead or honoring the dead from the war and it just hit the spot. I just, it was like someone had pushed the button and the floodgates opened. I cried and cried and cried and cried like a baby. I must have cried, I don't know, I must have cried for about 20 minutes. I couldn't say a word. I was just sobbing and shaking. And I didn't know what had happened. I mean, I just, because I'd never felt, I'd never lost any close friends. But I think it was even deeper than that. It was, uh, it was grief for the human beings that had died rather than just, you know, SADF guys then whose faces I knew from around the camp. And that sort of that was that was a huge um, awareness, and I never had the night terrors. I mean, no, I never had the night terrors like that again. Not at that level. Of I fear. think also grief for innocence lost for all of you for your yeah. generation. Yeah, I think that's that's also that's also a big part of it. So, Paul, there must be thousands of men serving on both sides um, who've served in this war who must still be suffering some kind of post-traumatic stress. And as you say, it's not necessarily a disorder, it's not PTSD, mm. but just post-traumatic stress. I mean, has there been any um, effort to provide counselling, support, that sort of thing? I don't think there was anything official, certainly not from the military. Um, when we came out of the bush, there was a transit camp just across the river, uh, from Rundu and I think we had about 45 minutes with a uh, with a psychologist who when we asked him it turned out he was a industrial psychologist with an honours degree which I think qualifies you for, no for nothing <laughs> in terms of dealing with this this kind of thing it was a group session so that was that was about as much as I got offered um, and I think I think a lot of guys like myself don't always know that this is from the war you know? they just think that's how I am maybe mm. and I learned to drink in the war and I just carry on drinking now when yeah. in fact that's probably a symptom or the, yeah. um yeah sort of a, a self-medicating self-medication yeah. so how did you begin to conceive of a journey back to Angola as a way of putting those ghosts to rest it's interesting so that was also an idea from when I was already in the bush in Angola I thought I'd love to see this place in peacetime um and I had to obviously shelve that because the war continued it was a brief period in the 90s, I think, 92 or somewhere, where there was a peace in Angola, a brief peace. And I thought, I mm, wonder if I could get back in there now and, and go and see it in peacetime. But then the war started up again. So it was only in 2002 that the war finally ended. And, um, and then at this point, I was living in London. So trying to get back to Angola was, you know, was, uh, was, was very difficult. But it was always in my mind that, that I wanted to go and see it in peacetime. I wanted to go and see it without fear of being blown to bits or, you know, um, bombed by MiGs. And so um, when we moved back to South Africa um, four years ago, and obviously I didn't have a practice here, and so I had time on my hands, I thought, this is, this is the ideal opportunity. I might not get it again. So I thought, well, let, me, let me go back and, and see. So altogether 1,500 kilometers? Yes, yeah. On a bicycle. On a bicycle, yeah. So I was driven from Joburg by an ex-Mkontu um commander who um, 
invited me to go with him. I'd struggled to get a visa. So I put my, my, my journey off by a year. And um, I was put in touch with him by you know, social media contacts saying, you know, Patrick goes back to Angola regularly. Um, get in touch with him and as I contacted him and um, he said hey Paulie no problem he said we'll organize your visa through I think it was the Department of Veterans or something and um, and uh, I'll take you in my Land Rover so he took me to Quito Carnival and we spent a couple of days there and then I started my my journey alone from there. It was very dangerous too Paul I mean um, a lot of your journey probably um, the area still was still landmined I, just, I had to do quite a bit of research before I went. So I contacted the Halo Trust, who were involved in lifting landmines around the world, and I contacted one of their country managers in Angola, and he sent me, very kindly sent me, a very detailed email explaining the risks and explaining... Because originally I wanted to cycle um, from Luanda. <laughs> I didn't have the time, on the and the visa wouldn't have been long enough to do it, really. But that would have gone, I would have gone from Quito Carnival, through Quito Carnival, then south to the border, which is just sand roads and stuff. But it, it came out that, that actually they're building roads in Angola. They're laying down tarmac kilometer, you know, kilometer and kilometer every day. And so to assist the, the road makers, they've cleared uh, about 10 or 15 meters on either side of the road is cleared of landmines. So I knew that. Uh, I knew that I should be very careful if I didn't see landmine signs that there would be there could still be landmines, particularly around bridges and towns and stuff. And I was sleeping wild, uh, sleep, camping wild, sleeping in the bush, uh, just in my sleeping bag a lot of the time. So I had to be really careful about where I put my sleeping bag down. <laughs> so I'd look out for things like um, like the, where the construction workers had had a, some kind of compound or where you could see lots of heavy trucks had moved in and out. I could camp there because if there were landmines, they would have blown up. And one night I slept in a dry water hole because you could see there would there'd been many, many cattle have been in and out. So I thought, well, that's, if the cattle have <laughs> gone through it, I should be fine. <laughs> you have photographs in the book, and it's very nice to get photographs in books. It's so rare these days. But photographs you took of wrecked and abandoned military um, aircraft and tanks, etc. Mm. Very eerie. I mean, you must have felt the ghosts very close, close to you then. Yes, uh, I mean, that. a lot of it was, I mean, when I got to Quito Carnival, I mean, even just outside the town next to the airport, there's a, there's a burnt-out tank, and then in the floodplain, there's all sorts of, you know, there's tanks, there's anti-aircraft guns, there's uh, military barges, there's um, military, military um, vessels sort of pulled up on, on the side, rusting. And, um, so, so Quito Carnival was just like this immersion in the war for me. It was very, very, um, I was very, very emotional, very sad, deep, deep sadness. I felt that in touch with that grief again. And then along the roads, which they called the road of death between Quito Carnival and Manongi, um, the, the road was littered with, with you know, all sorts of, of military equipment that had been blown up. Um, I found as I moved away, as I moved further away from Quito on that road, the, the military wreckage got less and less um, intense and difficult. You know, that I really was very, very in touch with, with those difficult emotions at that point here. Yeah. I'm sure. And Paul, there wasn't um, a single cathartic moment or confrontation sort of at the arc of your journey. It seemed to me as a reader, as a sort of a, a gradual build-up, a gradual almost serenity that began to build over the... The, the days and weeks? Yeah, there was, I mean, originally I wanted Quito Carnival to be the end. I wanted that to be the climax. 
And when I met uh, Roberto, the, uh, the Cuban, ex-Cuban soldier, Quito, that was a that was an enormous uh, moment. It was, and, and afterwards I thought actually, maybe I should. You know, I wish that had been at the end because mm. that would that felt like a catharsis. And I, I cried after meeting him as well because it was just such a. It was He's kind a of former a relief. combatant. He was. He'd been in the Cuban army in Angola between eighty six and eighty nine, and he'd been based at Quito Carnaval in eighty seven when I was in the forces, sort of advancing on Quito. So we're effectively on other sides. Um, of the same, you know, on a different sides on the same battlefield. Um, but meeting him was, it was, a, it was, it felt like a relief, actually. I'd, I'd seen a very real face of the enemy, you know, the, my direct enemy at that time, he was amongst them. And it was part of what I needed to do in my journey. It was almost like creating the whole. I was one half of the war, and I felt incomplete because I hadn't met someone from the other side. And meeting him kind of put it all, put it together to me. I was whole, I felt whole again after that. I had to, my journey started off almost processing that. So traveling along this road full of war and memories and minefields. Um, and then as I went beyond Monongi, gradually um, I calmed down and I'd, I'd processed it. I'd come to terms with what had happened in Guito and how I'd met the enemy and how I'd, I was feeling more at peace. And then I just started looking around and enjoying enjoying Angola, enjoying the, the, the scenery and the people. And, and, and the, the kindness of strangers. Kindness of strangers, just incredible. Um, and I got back. I said to my wife, "What would you know? What would you do if someone rang the, the doorbell in, your, in our complex and said, i 'I'm just passing through. Do you mind if I pitch my tent on your lawn?'" <laughs> I don't think many people in Joburg would, and would, would, allow, would invite them in. <laughs> no, nor would you give him supper. <laughs> no. Somebody else did. There were those who <clears throat> said at the time, and they always do, "Oh, we'll make a man of him. We'll send him to the army. It'll make a man of him." What do you say to that? Um, when I'm being polite, <laughs> I mean, it, I, I suppose that the the question is, what kind of man do you do you want your son to be? What kind of what kind of person do you want them to turn out? I mean, even if you even if you have a a military system and there's no war, I mean, the military system requires a certain kind of um, attitude to the world, and that attitude develops before before we even got to the army. We were used to not questioning, or well, some of us were. I mean, some of us questioned more than others, but the system of schooling was, you know, there was a certain kind of discipline that said you do as you're told, you don't question, you learn the stuff we tell you, you don't ask, you know, difficult questions, you just, you wear your uniform in a very certain, in a very certain way and you polish your shoes and you have your hair cut. And so by the time you get to the army, you're used to rules and regulations and not questioning. So what kind of, what kind of citizens are you preparing us for? It's a system of obedience and authority. So we were prepared for the military, and then we go through the military, which 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 is actually just a more intense and brutal form of that socialization, I think. And and the aim of the the military is to teach people to kill. That's the bottom line. That's that's what you're doing. I think there are other ways to give people a sense of responsibility. I mean, you can do you know what community work or another kind of national service if you think that's necessary. But teaching people to kill is, you know, I, I personally I think that's fundamentally wrong. But then what happens when they have killed and you come back? What is, you know, has that you, made him a better man? Has it made you a better man? And, and actually, it's it's. Um, I don't think I haven't met many people who have killed who are, who are comfortable with it. 
deep right. down that that's it's it's always disturbing in some way and perhaps your ideology helps you deal with it but I, I personally think it's it's always a disturbing thing for a human being to take another human being's life I'm interested in the um in the broader idea of masculinity and what defines it and how what makes a good man and how do we grow good men It's a difficult one, and I suppose there's, there's, there's people who study masculinity in great detail, and, and um, I'm not really one of them. But from from my own experience, I think I think it's what how do we grow good people, and how do we enable people to be fully who they are, rather than shoehorning them into something we think they should be. Um, so I think if you start out from the premise that society should grow good men you're probably already on the wrong track i think society should be providing the environment for children to grow into good people whoever they whoever they are and um there's also the issue of shame which i think comes into it mm. shame at having served in a in an illegitimate army or on a losing side of a war if you want to look at it that way shame at what um, one might have done uh, while, while out there do you think that's a, um, a large part of the, the sort of post-traumatic thing uh, I'm not sure I have an answer to that I think um, you know, for me personally uh, part of my journey has been to reconcile you know the army I was part of this army I fundamentally disagree with the ideology of the state that that you know, whose army I served. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Friendships are very strong that are formed formed in the army. I mean, you tell that funny joke about the Vietnam vets. Well, how many <laughs> light bulbs does it take? How many Vietnam vests does it take to screw in a light bulb? No, you don't know you weren't there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. Um, but it's true. I mean, and yeah. it is simply because of the um, the circumstances in which you were together. You're mm. still in touch with your friends, mm. Dion mm. And, and John. Sure, what yeah. do they think back on? I mean, I, I've, I've they both read the manuscript early on. Um, and I think they you know, probably agree with a lot of what I've said. I mean, I, I don't know if they agree with with it all because we're different people. But um, I mean, John in particular said to me, um, he said uh, the other the other day when he'd when he'd been through the book again, he said, you know, I don't remember anyone while we were there saying, I love this, I want to stay, um, because there's a lot of nostalgia out there you know, on certain websites. A lot of guys are saying it was the best time in their lives, and maybe it was. But when I was in the army, I don't remember anyone saying to me, you know, I'm really enjoying this in one or two. And I've met subsequently signed on for an extra year, but they were usually had rank of some sort. But most most trippies wanted to get, get home. I think there are. I think you're quite right. I think there is some nostalgia out there. And certainly um, from the Zimbabwean uh, War of Independence as well. And I, is it not because it was such a, a time of such heightened emotion um, of, of fear for your safety, of that, of that incredible bond mm. um, that, that you miss in the outside world now? I think so. I think that's probably what it is for a lot of guys. I mean, I, I'd never really felt it. I do have twangs of, of nostalgia, but largely that's because of the human connections. But I have no desire to go back. Um, but yeah, I think, I think f I've had a very interesting life. <laughs> and I've really enjoyed it. And I've traveled widely and I've, I've you know, been to all sorts of interesting off, off the beaten track places. So I've, life's been interesting for me. But maybe for other guys, they've come straight out of the army and maybe gone to 
study or do a trade and gone straight to work and gone had families early and maybe maybe that's the most exciting time of their life. I don't mm, know. The camaraderie. Can, yeah. Do you have a practice in Cape Town, Paul? I practice as a life coach now, yeah. Not as a psychotherapist. I was wondering whether you, you do any treating of post-traumatic stress. Um, I have done in when I was working in London. I'm not registered to practice in South Africa as a psychotherapist yet. But I think there's there's still useful work um, I can do in, in the life coaching space with with um, former combatants from, from other sides too, I guess. I think that's just because I, I've been there. So in a sense, that helps that helps me you know, understand where they're coming from. But I think more importantly, it, the the person who comes to talk to me knows that I've been there. I think, and that means more to veterans. I think. Cause, I mean, I, I I had a very positive healing experience with a therapist who'd never been to war. So I don't think therapists ne- necessarily have to go through the experiences that their clients have. But I think from a client's point of view, from a veteran's point of view, it's often easier to sit with someone that you know knows what they've experienced or have some, has some idea. You were telling me before we went on air about an um, initiative that you've um, just been involved in uh, involving storytelling. Tell me more mm. about it. This is um, this, this, this last weekend. Um, we were a group of military veterans from different formations um, uh, from the war. So we had um, people from Azanla and from MK and from SADF conscripts like myself as well as ex-permanent force um, and which is really a beginning of a of what they, the organizers hope will be a, a longer dialogue just telling our stories so that we can start understanding you know how people ended up in their different formations and and, and what they went through and how they've been sometimes traumatized and sometimes disadvantaged in later life by their experiences and that kind of thing. I think that'll be a very, very valuable initiative, and hopefully a book will come out of that. Because, of course, (laughs) I'm a great believer in writing it down as well. Paul, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. That's Paul Morris, and he was talking about his book, Back to Angola, A Journey from War to Peace.